Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, McDonald Laurier Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Shuvaloy Majumdar, Monk Senior Fellow for Foreign Policy, and I am so excited today. Today we are joined by a legend of the foreign correspondent community of Canada. This gentleman has toured the entire world. There is not a news service in Canada that he has not worked with. Jonathan Manthorpe has joined us from Victoria today in a freezing cold day in Ottawa. You mentioned a little bit earlier about how your ears are tingling a bit. So I'm glad that these memories are coming back to you because the rest of us have to suffer through it. Well, Shiva, I mean, I wish I could wake up every morning to uh, an opening to the day like that. That's, uh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Well, now you're at iPolitics where we, mm-hmm. are, where we enjoy your contributions on a weekly basis yeah. on your observations of things around the world. So thank you so much for continuing to contribute to our national conversation. Well, I would probably drop dead without it, I think. Now, you started as a foreign cor- correspondent a year before I was born, 1979. Yeah, I started, actually, uh, I started, uh, I had the, f- the job that Ernest Hemingway had when he went to uh, Europe in the 1920s. In I was the, the European bureau chief for the Toronto Star. Yeah, he, uh, he was wiser than me. He had the uh, bureau in Paris. I had it in London. But, uh, <laughs> and uh, I would never aspire to being uh, the writer that he was. But, uh, yeah, it, uh, it was. It was a good spot to start from, I guess. But I'd been already a journalist for 15 years before that. Well, you know, there's that bar in Paris where I'm sure you've you've tipped a glass or two in his honor. Well, I haven't actually. My wife and I we went. We were in Paris in September, and uh, I'd never looked at the places where he lived and worked and uh, we did a little tour around of the left bank yeah he had some nice digs around there some yeah. nice cafes around uh, a lot better than i had in london so uh, <laughs> I, was, I was envious well thank you for being here with us in ottawa mm-hmm. all these years later we're mm-hmm. excited to have a conversation with you about your incredible new book mm-hmm. claws of the panda beijing's campaign of influence and intimidation in canada mm-hmm. a quick point um we, we had the pleasure of having uh breaking some bread last night mm-hmm. How many times has a publisher printed this book now? Uh, well, we're just going into the third print run now, which is extraordinary. I think I'm, I'm amazed, and I think uh, I probably have to thank uh, Huawei and uh, <laughs> Miss Meng uh, Wangzhou. Uh, we couldn't have planned to bring this out, book out at a better time when all the issues that are that are in the book are, are front and center of, of Canadian attention. So uh, it's it's flying off the shelves, much to my surprise. I thought it would be a, a book for, for nerds and aficionados, but it seems to have caught public, public attention, which is good. Well, I'm definitely a nerd, not an aficionado, <laughs> and I congratulate you on this extraordinary accomplishment. I want to encourage our, our listeners to make sure they take some time to go get this Clause of the Panda by Jonathan Manthorpe. And this conversation on China, it's uh, it's in the shadow of every global conversation today. Right. There isn't a part or corner of the world that you've been mm. able to cover where mm. people are not talking about the advent of China. Absolutely. Let's talk about something mm. very current today. Yep. The two Michaels, yep. Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, yep. detained in China. What's your take? Well, I mean, there's some news this morning that they've had a, a consular visit, again, the fourth one only since they were detained at the uh, beginning of December. And let's, you know, let's make no bones about it. These guys are being held hostage 
against the extradition case against uh, Meng Wanzhou, the uh, chief financial officer of Huawei, and that her case should come up, I think, probably uh, next week. Although, of course, it is also part of the whole trade negotiations between Washington and Beijing, and we can come to that in a moment because that has implications for us. But you know, we, I think the the hostage taking of the two Michaels is for Canada the most serious aspect of this affair, the most immediately serious, because what happens to these two, how this hostage taking is resolved, is going to affect and mold the relationship between Canada and China for a long time, in my view. We know that they are being mistreated. We know from what Canadian diplomats and others have said that they are being subjected to sleep deprivation meaning the lights are on in their cells 24 hours a day. We know they're being interrogated. We know that the accusation is that they have they have imperiled China's national security, even though that neither of them have been charged yet. They're being tortured. They're being essentially tortured. I mean, sleep deprivation over a period of time is torture. There's no doubt about that. There's absolutely no doubt. So, you know, I think we've already seen that the Canadian public is very concerned and has taken to heart the plight of these two men. So what happens to them, I think, is is going to determine the nature of the relationship between China and Canada for quite a considerable while. And we can talk a bit, if you like, about possible scenarios. Actually, yeah, let, let mm. us know. I mean, mm. you've got a tremendous picture of two men who, mm. one who was in service of government of Canada and right. now in the world through his work at the International Crisis Group, Michael yeah. Kovrig, who yeah. is a, an incredibly talented person. And one mm. is yeah. ostensibly attempting to try and build bridges between the West right. and North Korea. Yeah. What would Beijing have in taking these two individuals into Well, that's a, you know, that's a very, very good question. I don't know. I think that if Beijing thought about it for five minutes, and they probably have, they would think, mm, that was not a good idea. Right. I mean, I think they, they reacted instinctively. And that, you know, for us is important, right. because that shows us what their instinctive reactions are. And it's something that we need to remember for the future. But, you know, these are two guys, as you, as you suggest, you who were working both of them in their ways on very important labors of understanding. Now, uh, Kofrig, of course, has a very long experience and is highly regarded as someone who has worked to understand how China works. And maybe that's one of the reasons why they were suspicious of him. Yeah. And uh, Michael Sparberg, he, he, you know, he was trying to build bridges with North Korea. And, you know, that's a difficult task, uh, but it's, a, you know, a commendable one. I don't see any reason why he should have been regarded a threat to China's national security, but there we are. Yeah. But I think that, you know, the question is now, how does China see its way of getting out of this? Tell us. Well, you know, the thing that concerns me about the way these two guys are being treated is that if you look at all the past experience of this sort of thing, they seem to be being softened up for some sort of televised confession that, yes, they will, they will be stuck in front of cameras 
and they will confess to having endangered China's national security. There will then be some sort of uh, show trial and they will undoubtedly be found guilty and then uh, there will be uh, some magnanimity and uh, they'll probably, you know, may do a little time in prison or whatever and then there will be some, um, some excuse, maybe a moment of strong diplomatic links or so a visit or something by a politician one way or another and they will be released. That's the way these things have usually gone in the past. But, you know, that is a totally, totally unjust and and reprehensible way of dealing with the situation. Canada did nothing in the detention of Meng Wanzhou and the Hawaii affair except following, first of all, its international obligations under an international treaty, and secondly, the rule of law and an independent judiciary. And for China to react this way has really revealed the conflict in our values, in my view. So tell us. Taking a bit of a step back, Mm. when Canadians are to look at China and Beijing Mm. and they see the arrest and detainment, Mm. the hostage taking of these two Canadians, Mm. what is your assessment of how the Canadian public will Mm. see when they see China now? I think an important point to clarify, Shu, from the very beginning, and I've done it throughout the book, is that we are dealing not with China, not with the Chinese people. We are dealing with the Chinese Communist Party, which is a ruling elite. And I think we must always make that distinction. Canada's relationship with China and with Chinese people is a long and solid and affectionate one. Um, that goes back you know, more than 100 years. Our dealings with the Chinese Communist Party are another matter. You know, Ch- Canadian people in general have always been skeptical about the relationship with the Chinese Communist Party. We've had, or we've got, elites in Canada, in politics, in business, in academia, indeed also in the media, who have been the objects of, of flattery and diplomacy from the Chinese Communist Party for years. And they have taken a much, much more benign view of our relationships could, with China. How could they be deceived so fully and robustly? Well, the campaign has been very thorough. A lot of it, of course, has involved money. There have been uh, particularly bus- the business community. Those who have benefited from it are, are very numerous, and they have also exerted political pressure and public pressure to stop uh, criticism of of China when it's arisen. So, for example, you know, our um, response to the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989 was minimal. The ambassador was withdrawn. There were a few sanctions for a little while, but very quickly the relationship returned to normal. We have voiced very little criticism seriously of the Chinese Communist Party's cultural genocide in Tibet or in mm-hmm. Xinjiang, uh, the, which is the Muslim-majority area of north, uh, northwestern China. We have said almost nothing serious about Beijing's defiance of international law and its occupation of the South China Sea. We have been negligent in our support for Taiwan, which China claims to own. Totally spurious claim. So China's campaign of influence here has been really very successful. But one of the things that that concerns me perhaps even more than that, or at least as much as that, is the way that Communist Party agents have been able to operate here 
to intimidate mostly Canadians of Chinese heritage or of Tibetan or of Uyghur heritage, whom the Communist Party considers to be dissidents. Often people who are politically active for reform in, in greater China. I find that quite deplorable. And one of early in the book, I set out a whole uh, list of uh, documented cases where Communist Party agents have in Canada been intimidating uh, Canadians of Chinese heritage. And I think that we should have stomped on this stuff long ago. We have not done so. I, I still hope that it will happen. I think it would be a sharp reminder to Beijing that it cannot run riot here without consequences. What do you say to the legion mm -hmm. of advisors that are swelling in the ranks of the federal mm -hmm. bureaucracy, telling the prime minister and the foreign minister, mm -hmm. oh, we can't make it worse for these two Michaels. We can't push yeah. the envelope and start being retaliative or retributive. What's your view on uh, how Canada's posture should be in the face of this China? Well, I think we should be very firm. You see, my, my view on this is that it is now up to China to apologize to us, you know, to, to use a phrase that they love to use. You know, uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party has insulted and hurt the feelings of the Canadian people. And for this to be resolved, it seems to me it is now up to China to show remorse and to try and, uh, and, and uh, rectify the situation. It is not up to us. We should be being very firm, very overt, saying, look, this is totally unacceptable behavior and uh, you better stop it and clean it up quickly. I mean, this is not a time to uh, keep quiet. This is a time to be firm and public. In short, we should have a backbone as a country. Well, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, we would agree with you. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Now, let's get into the geopolitics of what we're looking at today. Mm -hmm. There is a clear strategic competition between the world that the West has inherited, yeah. represented today by President Donald J. Trump, and the world that is coming, mm -hmm. represented by President Xi Jinping. In this U.S.-China strategic competition, mm -hmm. What do you think it means for countries like Canada? This, I think, is perhaps one of the most important moments in our history. Until now, we have uh, depended for our uh, security in the broadest sense, meaning also, you know, the security of our values, not only our physical security, but our, the, the security of, our, if you like, North Atlantic culture. Yes. Let's put it like that. Uh, we have depended first on Britain and then on the United States. I think we are now at a moment where it is apparent that we are unlikely to be able to depend on the United States any further. Donald Trump, in my view, is the symptom of a much greater divide in U.S. society, which is that divide has been always been there since the founding of the country, and it, it wells up to the surface every now and again, as in the Civil War and so on and so forth. And clearly, it is resurging now. And it seems to me that the United States is going to be engaged in a process of internal conflict and self-examination for quite a while. Now, one of the uh, encouraging moments I saw in the, in the last few weeks since the beginning of the December in the Huawei affair is that when the, uh, our federal government appealed for support from other middle powers, they got it on this issue. I hope, I hope very much that that was the beginning of the realization in Ottawa amongst all political parties that in the future, if we want to defend our North Atlantic values, although they are, of course, no longer exclusively that, we are going to need 
an association of middle powers to be able to do it. China, as you say, is going to uh, is going to become dominant. It may well very soon be the largest economy in the world. Its uh, view of the world is going to influence international institutions and not in ways which are favorable to Canada. So we are going to need uh, a whole load of allies. Not uh, we, We're not going to be able to depend on one or two anymore. And I hope that one of the positive outcomes of this whole Huawei affair will be the realization in Ottawa and across the country generally that we need to put together a team of allies. We can't just rely on one or two anymore. So building on that, you're, imagine with me, sitting mm. in Minister Freeland's office mm. at the Pearson Building on 125 Sussex. Yeah. And the minister asks you, Jonathan, mm. I'm pursuing a vast strategic reset mm-hmm. of how Canada deals with China. and how Canada should engage the world as it engages China. What would be your, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but what what would be your prescriptions to her in how she wrestles with what's in our national interest? My first advice (laughs) would be, set China aside for a while. Set it aside. It has never been our our most attractive partner in Asia anyway. Focus on Japan, focus on South Korea, focus on other countries of Southeast Asia, like Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, focus on on India, focus on, on Sri Lanka, focus on Taiwan. Those are countries that we can deal with far more equitably than we can deal with China. You know, what, what I was looking at the if you look at our whole relationship with China, one of the, the frailties of it, and one of the reasons why it's been so easily destabilized by this, is that we only have a trade relationship with China. We don't have anything else. We don't, we don't share civic values. We don't have shared security interests. We don't have a shared view of international institutions. But if you look at other countries of Asia, you look at Japan, you look at South Korea, you look at Taiwan, you look at Indonesia, Malaysia, and so forth. With those countries, we share far more interests. And so when you get something that goes wrong, it is not as devastating because you have other buffers to fall back on in the relationship. With China, we only have trade. And then, of course, it is a, it's highly imbalanced trade as well. I mean, they're still buying from us the things they bought from us in the 1960s, you know, basically grains and and natural resources. And, you know, they sell us three times more than uh, we buy from or we sell them. You know, it's it's always been an imbalanced relationship and it's always been a vulnerable relationship because it is it's so unilingual, if I can put it that way. It's it's uh, it is just trade and that's all. So I would I would say to Minister Friedland, set China aside. You know, we're not going to have a, a free trade agreement that's of any meaning. You can't have a free trade agreement with a country that doesn't believe in the rule of law. We're not going to have an extradition treaty with them for the same reason. Just put it aside, forget about it for a while, and concentrate on the countries in Asia with whom we can have serious, broad relationships. I, I, I think I would say to her also, you know, I mean, she's a, she's a very admirable person in many ways, and I think she's being a very good foreign minister. But she tends to be, in my view, a little Eurocentric. I would like her to focus a bit more on Asia, which uh, is inevitably going to be uh, more important for Canada in the long run than others. But that would be my advice. Set China aside, forget about it. Claws of the panda. Mm-hmm. 
over 40 years of veteran foreign correspondence experience observing China from a variety of vantages, whether it's Europe, Africa, mm-hmm. Hong Kong, mm-hmm. where have I missed? <laughs> well, Hong Kong was the big one, of course. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. One final question. Why did you call it Claws of the Panda? Well, because I wanted to get over that. I, I mean, we have this image of the panda as a cuddly, friendly animal. And of a course, deeply inadequate animal. Well, there, there's that too. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, China has used the, the cute and, if, and the sort of cartoonish image of the panda uh and, you know it's panda diplomacy is famous and um it's too famous it, it sort of lends or rents pandas around the world and this is meant to give the feeling that that relations with with china are cuddly and friendly and so forth clause of the panda was meant to imply what the book lays out that you know behind all this apparent friendliness and uh, so forth that well, the Chinese Communist Party has fostered over the last 70 years or so, there is a very dangerous animal. Now, whether the panda or not is, is a dangerous animal or not, I'm not sure. It certainly has claws. Uh, I can tell you that because I made sure I found out before I used the title. But, <laughs> but I wanted to get over the idea that we are being deceived and have been deceived for 60, 70 years about the true nature of this relationship with the Chinese Communist Party that what they want from the relationship is very different from what we want from it. A timely message, sir, a clarion call for action. Mm-hmm. Readers the world over should mm-hmm. go and get a copy of this book. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, uh, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you for your mm-hmm. incredible work you know, over the course of a very distinguished mm-hmm. career. We're delighted to have you here at the McDonald Laurie Institute. Mm-hmm. My name is Shuvaloy Majumdar, Monk Senior mm-hmm. Fellow for the McDonald Laurie Institute. Tune in for more.